welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 355. And today we are continuing a series that we've been in throughout this month, currently of July 2022. And the series is Reverse Engineering Success. If you've tuned into these episodes, you know that we speak with a hunter as part of this series about a very specific hunt and talk about some of the key decisions and decisive moments that led to that success. Today, our guest is Adam Yankee. You may be familiar with him from his podcast, Beyond the Kill. We speak with Adam about a specific mountain goat hunt that he had, the key decisions that were made, how to make decisions in battle and decisiveness, and so much more. There's a lot to take away from this episode, and although the context is mountain goat hunting, you can apply it to any hunt that you're planning this fall. As always, guys, we hope that you are enjoying these episodes. You can reach us directly by sending an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com, or you can ask us a question for a future Monday Minute episode. Just look for the link in the show description that says, leave us a message, and you can use whatever device you're currently on to leave us an audio message for those shows. If you're enjoying the show, it would be helpful if you could share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in the podcast app that you're using. Hit pause and do that now. Come right back. Here's this conversation with Adam Yankee. Well, Adam, man, welcome to the Hunts Back Country Podcast. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to to chat about hunting and and all sorts of other stuff today. Right, lessons from hunting, all, all that stuff. Yeah, we just had to remind ourselves to actually start a podcast because we got on here and started talking 20 plus minutes. Like, oh dang it, we had a an agenda and a show to, a show to share. But uh, for guys who don't immediately recognize your voice, uh, quick introduction. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name is Adam Yonke. I am the uh, founder and to a certain extent voice of um, the Drill Mountain Hunting and the Beyond the Kill podcast. Uh, we've actually in the last, I guess, probably only month, I mean, who knows when this will come out, but um, about 30 days from when this was recorded or before this was recorded, we actually converted everything over to just being Beyond the Kill now. So if you're somebody that's familiar with Drill Mountain Hunting um, and you go to the site and you see Beyond the Kill, what the heck? We, we just made a change to go consistent across the platform. The podcast has become, uh, you know, kind of our, our main, our main content outlet. And, uh, yeah, it's been a blast. I, I started it, it'll be eight years ago, uh, this August. Um, and my right-hand man, Nolan Osborne, who's a professional uh, mountain hunting guide up in Northern BC, the rest of the year he works, works with me. And so he's a co-host on the podcast. He manages, you know, so much of our content. I mean, really, I couldn't couldn't do it without him. So it's the two of us that, um, keep, uh, keep the lights on, I guess would be the way to put it. <laughs> That's cool. So the journal that I know at one point at least was print. And then obviously you guys have a ton of great articles online. Is that, is there still going to be a written, whether it's digital or print component to be on the kill? Yeah, they'll, they'll be written, uh, like digitally written or, you know, online articles, um, as, as we can either find ones that we want to cover, uh, or, or obviously write for ourselves or topics we want to cover. So we'll keep pumping those out, but you know, if I was to maybe put it in, you know, in terms of ratios, we're probably putting out geez, 10 to one podcast episodes to articles these days, which is also part of why we made this shift to going from, you know, in a way, these kind of separate entities, they were mm-hmm. very much inextricably linked, but with the podcast being where we were pumping out the most content, um, 
we started to have that conversation around, well, shit, you know, pardon me if I, if I shouldn't be saying that, okay. shoot, uh, um, let's just make it consistent, right? Like why say like, oh, I'm drilling on hunting this and then beyond the kill over here, podcaster over, over on this side when they were always very much linked together. And, um, and, uh, we're now at a point, I guess, with our content, cause we used to do like 12 to 16 articles a month, right? There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles on what was the drill mountain hunting website. And now, um, it just redirects to beyond the kill. Um, but we really dialed back on that in favor of the audio format. Um, but we definitely will find topics that we, we want to cover and we'll turn those into articles still yeah. for sure. And, but print, you know, I, I hate to admit it. Um, we took a crack at print and, um, you know, I, I really, I still very much believe that there is a place for, for print, especially over the last few years where so many of us were, uh, um, you know, stuck in front of a computer day in and day out. And yeah, that's our job by and large for a lot of us, but we just got so digitally, you know, kind of handcuffed. So mm-hmm. I do, I do see a spot for print. Um, but, uh, who knows? Maybe maybe one day we'll we'll, we'll dust off the plans and, and do another one. Um, yeah. But right now it's not not our, our area of uh, of uh, focus. Yeah, I hope. Like, I was I never intended to be a writer, but in, especially in the hunting world and the content world, like writing was my first foray, and I grew to absolutely love it uh, and did it for a long time. And I still miss it, but there's there's most of us don't have the attention span for it. Like even yeah. digitally, like we don't mm-hmm. have the attention span to, to read an article, whereas a podcast, like you can turn it on, you could be driving, you could be on the you know trail, you could be cutting grass, you could be doing a million things, which is different from sitting down and reading. And then on print, like I'm with you, I hope it, I hope there's this shift, like almost in the way that vinyl, you know, became cool right. again, that like yeah, one of right. these days, there's going to be a ton of cool print publications that mm-hmm. aren't just like a you know, a giant advertisement, but it's actually quality, both quality in the print and quality in the content. But I hope that that comes back, you know, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's interesting, right? I think, you know, when you look at podcasts and then, you know, there's everything out there in podcasts, there's seven minute podcasts, there's three hours and seven minute podcasts. I think, you know, I know, and I know this with, with the Hunt Backcountry podcast, a lot of our episodes, there's still long form content, which is, I think, where writing can really shine, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to do something in-depth in 750 to 1,000 words. You know, mm-hmm. we, we used to say, like, we don't want to run stories that are, I came, I saw, I killed, I went home. Like, that. there's lots of that out there. I'm not taking away from that, but there's lots of publications or, or outlets that do that stuff. For us, it was always, you know, for right or wrong, for, for those that, you know, did or didn't like it, we really liked the notion of, no, we're going to go in-depth. Like, we want to go long-form with an article with a podcast. And so we really just kind of took our mentality around, you know, the, the written content and just repurposed it to the audio format. And like you said, Mark, I think that's one of the things that is so uniquely interesting and, and in many ways powerful about podcasting is, is the, is the, when a person tunes in and mm-hmm. consumes that content, right? Like you said, like that attention span of scrolling through the phone, you're getting a DM an, an IG, a notification somewhere else while you're in the middle of an article, you're just not absorbing that the same way as when you're doing a long drive to the trailhead and listening to a, a one to two hour podcast or doing a training hike or at the, you know, at the gym or mowing the grass, whatever it is, like you're kind of stuck doing that thing that takes some attention, but then you can still be really, really absorbed by that, 
that audio content. And that's why, uh, I mean, I, I love podcasting. I'm, I'm obsessed with them. I, I haven't listened to more than probably an hour of radio in like eight years because <laughs> yeah. I'm going, if I'm going anywhere, yeah, there's a podcast on. We could, I'm sure, talk for hours about this question. The name Beyond the Kills, I want to say intuitive, meaning I know what that means immediately, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does that mean to you? And again, it could be hours of conversation. I'd also be curious, how has that shifted, right? So you mm-hmm. said you've been yeah. doing that for eight years. So it's like you had this original idea. It's like, oh, Beyond the Kill would be would be cool for a name because of mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. And then maybe is that any different now or it's kind of that, that same ethos? No, it's a great question. And it is, it is slightly different or maybe there's just a couple more layers to it than, than what the original idea was based on. Um, the, so the Journal of Mountain Hunting, which at the time you know I looked at as a digital magazine, meaning once a month we would publish an quote unquote issue that was... 12 to 16 articles, very focused uh, columns, like focused content. There was a, con- uh, a column covering training. There's a column covering, you know, shooting. There's a column covering X, Y, Z. So, you know, we did it that way for a number of years. I can't remember off the top of my head how many years we did it in that very sort of structured manner. Um, but I, when I decided to get into the, into the podcasting side of things, I didn't want to be boxed into mountain hunting only. I, I grew up in Eastern Canada. Um, I didn't grow up in, in, a, in a mountain province or state. I didn't grow up, you know, chasing sheep and goats and big, big mule deer and elk and those sort of things. I grew up hunting whitetails and, you know, if we, and, and frankly, whitetails and wolves were what we focused almost all of our time on. And then every now and then there'd be an opportunity to bear, or you might draw a tag for a moose, but those were few and far between. So I didn't grow up with, you know, this, this mountain hunting you know, upbringing or background. So I wanted to be able to go outside of this notion of, you know, the journal of mountain hunting. I didn't want to have like the journal of mountain hunting podcast, because at some point, as you guys know, you guys have done a, you know, a ton of content. You can, you can kind of, you either start, you either have to recycle stuff mm-hmm. like the 2022 version of what we talked about two years ago, or with beyond the kill, we could expand, we could cover cool hunts in, you know, the, the tundra of Alaska, or, you know, and I'm not saying that this is something we want to cover, not that we don't, but like muskox in the Arctic, like they're just cool stories in wild yeah. places. And although they don't mean going up and down mountains, they're still wicked expeditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to be able to cover that stuff. And from the get-go, our content was, you know, as, as you said, the, the name and, you know, sort of infers, not focused only on killing stuff. As we know, you know to be successful on any hunt in particular, I think mountain hunts, there's, uh, there's a lot that goes into that. You got to be physically prepared. You got to be mentally prepared. Your gear has got to be reasonably dialed that we can always change and improve how we handle our gear. Of course, you know, I think we're going to get into this today, but you've got to be quite proficient with your weapon. I mean, that goes with, with any hunt. Um, but there's so many things that have to happen outside of that moment. When you pull the trigger or loose the arrow, though, all those things have to go right for that moment to occur. And so that was the original sort of, you know, whatever you, you want to call it core concept that informed beyond the kill. And so the, the extra layer now is this idea we've been tossing around internally a lot is you know, this isn't a hobby. This is a lifestyle. And so when we talk about beyond the kill now, it's not just 
through the lens of, well, that means we can cover all these areas, you know, all these topics related to hunting. To me, it's more a representation of the lifestyle of the really committed hunter, wherever they are. And we know mm-hmm. this, I mean, you're in the Midwest, you whitetail people are some of the most committed, yeah. disciplined, mentally, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, disciplined people out there to like, to do that, to do that well. And I've been dipping my toes into it again, these last couple of years, hunting whitetails here in the West. And it just reminded me like, that's, it's just, it, it's still awesome. It's just different. Yeah. And so, um, that's really what beyond the kill means to us. And I hope to the audience is this is about being, you know, a, a, I kind of hate to use the term modern hunter, but being a hunter in this time, in this age, and all that can, can go into it, that we don't need to say should go into it, but can go into it. Yeah. Um, it is a lifestyle. It's, it's not just a, yeah, I go out once a week, once, once a year for one week of deer season. This is something I think about year round and I'm absorbed by it year round. And, and really that's, that's the, the core of it now. That's cool. You said like can versus should there, because I'm as much as the diehard guys, like, you know, you and I kind of like live the lifestyle and want to, and, and want to be spending our time in the off season, thinking about the coming season and prepping mm-hmm. and training and all that. It's like there, you know, sometimes that gets hate because guys see it and like, we don't have to do that. Like you don't have mm-hmm. to train that hard. Yeah. You don't, have, and I'm hundred percent with you. Like, yeah, you don't. Right. And no one's saying that one way is right or wrong or better or worse. It's just, you know, guys making decisions to like, I want to do this to a certain level and mm-hmm. other guys want to do it to a different level, very casually. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's no, really not, no. no, not, not at all. And I think, you know, Nolan, who I mentioned, you know, who's been a part of the team for as long as I can remember, you know, he's, he always sends me a few picks as he comes out of his, his guide territory or guiding territory. Um, and there's at least one or two hunts a year where he's wearing blue jeans and, you know, flannel and wool. And he's like, you know, I just want to see, I just want to yep. see what that was like, because you, know, we all know that's how it was done for a long time. And so, I mean, it's not to say one should do it, you know, X way. Um, but if you do, you know, kind of catch the sickness and want to get as good as you can get at this stuff, there, there are things you can do. Um, yeah. that I think will, will help with success or, uh, resilience out there, especially if we're talking about a long season of, of repeat hunts. Um, again, lots of guys out there, lots of gals out there, lots of people out there that, um, get it done with, you know, little to no prep and, and they're just really good hunters and know when to kind of turn the volume up and then they turn it down the rest of the year and they go back to you know, what, whatever normal life looks like. And, and that's awesome too. Frankly, <laughs> I almost love those stories more than right. the hardcores that do it year round and can get it done. I mean, I love those stories too, but I love hearing that, you know, the kind of everyday Joe or Jane that, that does it, um, with, with less. Yeah. hundred percent. So to start to dissect a story for the series, um, you know, we're calling reverse engineering success. Um, just set the stage for what, what this hunt was, it was a goat hunt, but kind of the, what, the, when, the, where from a super high level to give context. Sure. So, um, this hunt is going back, I think four years and, uh, it was actually an interesting one, uh, and, and kind of a funny one at the outset. So my buddy and I took a float plane into this lake and, you know, I, 
I know amongst the, you know, the, the British Columbia guys I hang out with, you know, there's this sort of, you know, almost um, mantra where, you know, you pay that money, you set aside that time, you hope you're landing on a lake where there's nobody else. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we land on the lake and um, the, the pilot on the way in, um, you know, we, he's, they're just milk running, right. It's just flight after flight after flight all day. Um, so we get in, we were actually in the air and he's like, where are we going again? I'm like, Oh, such and such lake. And he's like, Oh, hope you guys brought your bulletproof vest. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that, that there's an outfitter camp on that lake. And he is not friendly. He's not friendly to us. He's not friendly to hunters. So I look at my buddy and he's, just, and he's, he hunts, but he doesn't, he's kind of like the, the normal person. He hunts a couple of times a year, happy with whatever happens and then doesn't think about it for most of the year. So he's right away looking at me like, what the hell did you get me into? Um, and so we fly in, land across the lake from this outfitter camp and instantly a boat is coming over a little, little aluminum boat and an outboard. And I'm like, Oh man, we're going to get in a scrap. And we haven't even like, we're still in the Actually, water. <laughs> we're like, there's still a bag coming out of the, the float plane to us. And this boat's coming across. Um, and, and this, this will matter as it relates to the story because it, it completely changed what we were going to do. Well, it turns out the guys coming across the lake were guys we knew that had just by happenstance flown in to this exact same lake, lake, excuse me, at the exact same time of year as we did, which ended up being mid late September. So we end up having this moment of we're going from, okay, like, I'll throw the first one. You just back me up right. to like, oh, you know, hilarious. And they, they're like, oh yeah, you guys got to come over here. We know the outfitters. It's cool. You can sleep in the outfitter camp tonight and yada, yada, yada. Um, why this matters is uh, when we got in there, we realized one, obviously we weren't alone on the lake. Two, there was their party, their group, our group, the two of us, and then two other groups had already packed out from the camp. And so where we wanted to go, where we'd identified through all of our, you know, e-scouting and prep, there were already sheep hunters there. So this was actually supposed to be a sheep hunt, not a goat hunt. But, you know, we're, we're very fortunate in BC, at least for now, where most of the time you can fly into Northern BC and you're going to have a, a pocket full of tags. And you can be very opportunistic if you want, because, you know, your goat tags over the counter, your stone sheep tags over the counter, your moose tags over the counter, or was, that's changed. Your caribou tag was over the counter. Also, that's changed. Um, but you could have four or five tags in your pocket and not be too picky unless you're really set on getting whatever it is you set out to get. So we sit down at the table, we're all having, you know, our dinner and a, and a couple of bevies. And we basically have to like, it's almost like a conquering force. We had to divide the map up Yeah. where we knew someone was over there. The other guys that we knew they were going to one spot that was kind of our second choice. We knew the other party had already trailed out on horses somewhere else. And so we were left with this kind of we were the fourth choice out of the groups and that was fine. We said, okay, fine. Like we don't want to step on any toes. Like we want to be kind of good neighbors if you want to put it that way. And, um, and so we, we, we head out in the hopes that we're still going to find stone sheep and uh, ends up that I think it was the first morning. So we, we hiked in, set up camp um, next to this real nice looking basin. And it was that next morning where we, we, we found a good Billy and, um, and that's, that's where the, the story led, but you know, this was not, not planned to be a goat hunt. It wasn't planned yeah. to even be where we are. We didn't, other than topos, we didn't have any like Google earth or any fat map or any other mapping software downloaded to our phones. We had a, <laughs> pardon me, we had a topo and we just had to go and figure out, 
you know, where we thought the animals might be because it was not anywhere we'd put any time or attention into our, our preparation for. Wow. You, uh, this is like a side, but is it still the case that Onyx doesn't have any, um, any data, any imagery doesn't kind of operate for Canada? You know, I, I know that was the case at some point. I've honestly, um, you know, because uh, I'll speak for British Columbia, I, I you know, haven't hunted in Alberta or anywhere else where uh, this would apply, but BC is, I don't remember the exact number, but let's call it somewhere from 80 to 90% public land. Yeah. So where I think Onyx has uh, helped so many hunters is that identifying, okay, where am I on public? Where am I on private? How can I navigate between the two if I need to? And then of course they overlay like the, the typical, you yeah. know, um, data that, that you would expect from, from a mapping program. So I've never actually used Onyx or even tried to in, mm-hmm. in BC. I'm, I'm a big believer in fat map. We've come to use, really to rely on that. So does that provide ton. satellite imagery as well? Fat map? Oh yeah. It's, it's yeah. a, it's a, I, and, then, and I had the founder of fat map on our podcast a few weeks back and I don't remember the stat he shared, but he was, I think he compared it to Google earth, which was the resolution was, was quite, quite wide, right? Meaning that satellite resolution was, uh, this is not the number, but let's just say like a kilometer by a kilometer. Yeah. So if you're trying to zoom in closer, you're losing detail by, because it's, it's just not, it's just not built that way. Yeah. Whereas fat map is down to like one meter by one meter or something like that. It's crazy. Wow. The terrain resolution you can get to make hopefully good decisions or in our cases, sometimes really bad decisions, but um, yeah. we, we didn't have yeah any of that sort of stuff in our, in our pockets or anything like that. We had a topo. And uh, just kind of looked at that and said, well, this looks like it could be a good basin. That looks like it could be a good basin. Let's get up there and, and try and figure it out. Um, yeah. yeah. Trying to put myself in listener's shoes and hearing that story of like, you show up, you know, there's parties here, there's parties there. And like, you guys are, okay, well, this is what we have left. Like, this is what we're going to hunt. And envisioning that so many guys are immediately going to go to, well, I'm just going to pull up Onyx and see what this looks like. Right. And then I just, yeah. it dawned on me. It's like, Oh wait, you guys don't have Onyx. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Well, so. and, and I don't know, like, again, not knowing how Onyx works, but in, in vast, vast, vast tracks of Northern BC, you have no service, right? right. Like you're yeah. not, you're not pulling up an app and downloading something on the fly. Sure. You either got to have it pre-downloaded um, or you've got to find a way to get, to get service. I mean, there's the odd, 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 outfitter camp, which is usually going to be their main lodge, which will usually be close to one of the highways up there mm-hmm. where they might have like satellite internet or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty rare. Like if you don't have what you need from a mapping perspective, when you get in there, you're, you're, you're kind of on your own. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Onyx would be very similar in terms of, I always, you know, was like, okay, here's the primary where I think is going to be the hunting area. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to get a whole bunch of stuff in every direction all around that. Right. Cause you yeah. run into situations like that where you're like, I didn't anticipate being in this country, but that's where we're going, you know? Well, yeah. And, and you know, and, and talking about lessons and re- reverse engineering success, you know, that was a big lesson I took away from that hunt. That's not the one we're here to talk about today, but that was one where I would take like, let's say a, a core of maps that you would, you know, tap to download mm-hmm. for an area. I'll just extend extend by another 25 to 50% just in case now, so that I'm not stuck in that position. I mean, it turned out well and fine for, for a number of reasons I think we'll get into today. Um, but that was a, a key lesson I took away from that is be, be ready to have your, your plans change. Right? Yeah. It's almost, it's almost the given, right? I mean, we used to say on the podcast all the time, you know, the animals have a say we don't 
you know, we don't make all the decisions out there. And in this case, it was more human-based than animal-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a it's a good practice to look at where you intend to be and then include, you know, a B zone, a C zone, I mean, all the way to a Z yeah. zone if if you think you should, right? Depending on you know how much time you have on your hands to explore. So in this story, you know, we're not necessarily going to go chronological. I want to throw a thought at you and you can take it where you want in the hunt. But, um, you know, really, is we were talking about reverse engineering success. And it's like trying to dissect very specific decisions that were made over the course of the hunt that, for better or worse, maybe throughout the hunt affected the outcome significantly or what I would call like a decisive moment. And you even mentioned um, in some of the notes we were exchanging that you as a hunter need to be able to be decisive, like to make quick decisions. So you need to be able to fall back on whether it's, you know, knowledge, whether it's training, whether it's even like called the instinct that's developed over time. There's all kinds of ways that as hunters, we make decisions, Mm -hmm. but then there's certain times where as hunters, it's like, I'm just not sure what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I think back at many hunts, myself, stories of other guys, it's like those decisions, they're so key because even indecision is making a decision. Yeah, <laughs> it's making a decision to not yeah. proceed with a plan, yeah. right? And exactly. you don't know what's going to happen, but indecision can be so killer. And mm-hmm. it feels safer because it's not the wrong, quote unquote, wrong decision, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But most often it's for sure the wrong decision it's just to be indecisive. So that thought, like what's a decisive moment in this hunt and feel free to elaborate on like that part of the story, but then kind of like for you, what informed in your history, experience, research, et cetera, you to be able to act decisively relatively quickly. Yeah. The, well, let me add a little bit of maybe context to this. Cause I think we'll, we'll probably get there through the story and, and through the lessons, but you know, there, we were, we were talking, you know, kind of off air before we started recording about gear and, um, you know, it can be easy to get swept up in the good idea of fairy of gear, right? And that can be your apparel, your pack, your accessories, your food, you know, we can call that gear because it's, it's important while you're out there, obviously. And of course your weapon. And, you know, I, I've, <laughs> I wish I, I quite frankly, wish I had more guns than I do, but you know, where, where I, the, the context I'm trying to add in here is I took a weapon afield, my a rifle I've had since I was 16 years old, that is literally an extension of my body. I, I borderline can shoot the thing instinctively. And, you know, I'll say this quickly and maybe we can come back to it. It doesn't matter if we don't, but I grew up shooting that as my only firearm, um, for whitetail hunting. So that's everything from sitting in a stand, sitting on the edge of a field, or waiting for whitetail to get pushed by dogs or people through brush. So I shot this in so many different ways. You know, you want me to hit, you know, a whitetail at three to 400 yards in a field? I can do that. You want me to, you know, thread the needle through between two trees as it's walking into a, a stand setup? I can do that. You want me to hit a whitetail on the move because um, it's getting pushed and that means they're moving fast? Um, I could do that too. And I'm not saying I was you know, born with that. We just, we trained the heck out of that. Uh, like as my, as my extended family, which is who I hunted with, we shot and we shot a lot. So I, you know, fast forwarding to this hunt, 
you know, I could look at my gun safe and say, oh yeah, I want to take this or oh, look, we all have excuses to buy gear. Right? I can, mm-hmm. this, I'm, you know, I'm going on a sheep and goat hunt. I want to get probably seven mil, seven mil mag, maybe a 300 win. Cause I might be worried about grizzlies. I'm going to get a big, big skookum scope on that. And I'm going to get it, you know, hopefully a couple months before the hunt or whenever. And I'm going to put my, my time and energy into it. But I think we all, and I do, I do this probably every hunt. So I won't call it fall into the trap, but we can get swept up in the, what do I want to take a field new? Like, what can I do better? And mm-hmm. what can I take a field to, to be better or, or be more comfortable or whatever the case may be. So it's tempting to justify a new thing to get out there. I knew in my head, it was going to be hard enough of a hunt. We weren't going into an area that was known for high densities of, of stone sheep. So we knew we were going to get probably one chance if we, if at all. And I didn't want to be in a position where um, I couldn't be super decisive and not think about, okay, I got to get my, my bipod out and my front rest and my rear rest and all these things that come with, you know, how we, a lot of us train to shoot now rifles. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to take something where no matter what opportunity I got, whether we, we bumped around ram unexpectedly at, you know, whatever 50 yards, or it needed to be a 400 yard shot across a, you know, a basin. I was supremely confident in that rifle because I've I'd seen it work many times over. And in my, my comfort with that rifle to take any tough shooting position, any circumstance and be able to use it effectively. Mm-hmm. So that, that rifle, like choosing that one that, you know, the old standby, the one I knew well, I think was really critical to this happening uh, the way it did playing out the way it did. Yeah. Cause I just didn't like, you know, when you talk about like be, being decisive, there wasn't even a fraction of a moment's thought of, okay, how am I going to make this shot? Yeah. There's, there's none of that. What's interesting about that. And um, again, relating it to like us for lower 48 context, especially is on a hunt like this sheep goat for most of us, it's going to be such a unique opportunity and there's even more, um, I don't want to say pressure. That's the wrong word. There's more, thought given into every decision and i can't you know i tell you how many guys like oh i drew a sheep tag finally or i finally booked that hunt i'm gonna get a new rifle right they just exactly almost automatically assume like that rifle that i've been hunting deer and everything else with for maybe decades is not gonna cut it (laughs) you know i have this big awesome hunt i've been dreaming of for years decades um, and of course that hunt deserves like the latest, greatest, mm-hmm. most technical advanced setup. Right. <laughs> but mm-hmm. everything you said is like kind of the opposite of that, yep. which is just is, is good to highlight, you know, because it's, it really is. It's not like, it's not a, it's not a matter of like what's best. Like, I think we could objectively say that I'm sure you had rifles in the safe that were more advanced if you will mm-hmm. but that Absolutely. doesn't mean that in your hands that it was any more capable nope no and and let's let's you know maybe pull on a few threads there one is and i'm not going to get into politics here but you know the, the gun's a tool it's a tool it, it is only as lethal as the capability of the shooter and the same goes for for a bow i mean you can have a 90 pound draw bow that's slinging 600 plus grain arrows that could go through three grizzly bears and a rhino if you want but if you can't hit the broad side of a barn it doesn't matter mm. and, and so um you know staying on on that point which i think is a, a massively important and awesome point you know these hunts are 
if you're booking a hunt or you're draw, you finally draw that hunt, these are in many cases, once in a lifetime opportunities. And if you're booking it, they are not cheap and in no way would ever, you know, um, try to persuade a person not to get something they want to get, or maybe, you know, been thinking, oh, I can't justify it, but now I can Yeah, go ahead and get that, but get that a year out, two years yeah. out and, and learn and only use that rifle because, mm-hmm. you know, stuff's hard enough in the mountains as it is. You're going to be tired. You're probably going to be cold and wet. You're going to be wishing that, you know, you had the, you know, the, use that phone call to call your mom at some point. Trust me, I've been there. <laughs> and so you want to, I think, or maybe I won't say you to the, to the audience. I know for me, there's immense comfort and confidence in keeping those variables, very, like the list of those variables, really, really small, right? Like the animals have a say, like I said, they're going to do things that are unexpected or they're going to make decisions that, that mean you got to climb even more. You got to make a fast move, whatever it is, you're going to have to work for it. Um, and why not take something that is almost second nature to you out there to remove that variable as a consideration. And here's the thing, you know, sheep, there's, you know, we joke all the time, you know, sheep could, could die from being sneezed on. And I don't mean because of Movi. I mean, they're just, they, they die easily. Goat's a different, totally different story. And we'll get to that part of this story. Um, but any, you know, reasonably competent, um, not competent, excuse me, capable whitetail rifle, you know, a 280, a 308, 7 8 which is what I took a field on this hunt. Um, and, and all the other 30 odd six, all the, all the, the standbys 270, that's going to, that's going to knock those things over. No problem. If you know the animal, and if you know the realities of how the animal is going to respond to a shot, you're going to be able to put more accurate fire on that animal. If you need to follow up, which in many cases you will, um, with that, with that rifle or bow that you are incredibly comfortable with, incredibly uh, confident with than one that, you know, maybe just that bolt throws a couple degrees more than the other model. And it just doesn't cycle for you as quick as, you know, the one that you've shot since you were a teenager or since you were 20 or whatever the case may be. And so I think, you know, go out there, have fun, make the most of these experiences. But, um, you know, you, there are other ways and maybe even better ways to spend time and money than going out and getting some new skookum rifle, just because it, you know, it's, it's part of that hunt. Yeah. Yeah. So lead us further into the story. Why did it, why did this end up being so important and decisive and how the hunt played out to have this rifle? Yeah. So as I was saying a while back there, you know, we, we had the whole situation done at that, the base camp, you know, we, we part ways with our, with our friends, we hike in, we get set up on this first base and spend all that evening, like afternoon, evening, and the next morning looking for sheep. And it was on that morning where I see this Billy and he's, I think it's three basins over. Um, I don't remember the distance, but a ways away. And he is on the tippy top of the highest mountain in this range, this sort of spine we were, we were going to be working for our hunt. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a goat. So, you know, you can see it or it, you know, at the time, I didn't know if it was a he or she it turned out to be a he. Um, but it's a, it's a goat white mountain goat that stands out on this black, like almost lava rock in this one mountain range. So it was easy to see with the naked eye, put the spotter on him pretty confident it was a Billy. And it was that classic thing of, well, do we want to make a play on this or do we want to stay on, on sheep trying to find sheep and talk to my buddy. And we kind of said, well, look, we want to move that direction anyways. We'll hunt our way there. Meaning not, we're not just going to get up on the ridges and, and huff it and potentially blow rams out of the, out of the, the mountains. 
let's hunt our way there and we'll reevaluate the the chance for an opportunity um, if if we find them again. So um, we carry on over the rest of that day and we're up on this spine, you know, just off skyline and, and making our way towards this peak where we'd seen the billy. And we were um, we were setting up camp and I can remember this so well. I, I just kind of stand up and, you know, kind of stretch in the back after a day under the pack and bent, being bent over, setting up the tents. And lo and behold, the billy comes back around from the other side of that peak and he's right back where he was. Call it maybe a kilometer away at that point. So, you know, just under a mile, half mile or so. Um, and uh, I look at my buddy, his name's Matt. I'm like, oh, he's there again. And let's, let's, let's just work our way that direction, right? We had lots of daylight left and um, let's just see if, if, you know, we, we had no idea what the train looked like beneath him. Cause it was, you know, a series of mountain ranges and peaks. And then this one that stuck up, up above them. Right. Right. And yeah. We could look at the top one and could tell, but that there was, you know, there were basins and shoots and those sort of things, but you, know, you got to put the naked eye on it and say, and, and see for yourself, can we, could we get to it if we, decided to make a play, or maybe he'll feed over the ridge into some grass. There's some really nice grass on the, the side of the mountain we were on. Maybe he'll feed over that way. So again, no like decisiveness here, sort of not laissez-faire, but um, just deciding, you know, that we're going to load up the packs now strip down immensely because we dropped camp and uh, just make our way that direction. And so with, with full expectation that he might feed around the backside, he, he might see us, whatever. So we were hunting, we were being careful. Um, we kind of drop below skyline, stay, stay out of his sight lines, start making our way up that, that, that direction. And, um, and then you get into that age old, like, okay, I think this is where I want to kind of poke over and have a look. Um, and so we, you know, kind of crawl up to the, the ridge, ridge top and poke my head over and he's right there. Range him. Actually, sorry, <laughs> I should have qualified. My buddy Matt, who, as I explained, he doesn't hunt nearly as much as I do, um, and I was, you know, I had my my heart set on a ram on this hunt, and so I turned to him. I'm like, "Well, do you do you want him? Like, do you want to take take a crack at him if, if we can?" He's like, "No, no, no, man. It's it. This is, you know, this is, you know, you put all the planning in, you put all the the prep in. Like, if if you want him, he's yours." Um, so this happens right before we poke our our heads over, and and the Billy's right there. Um, he's at 308 yards. Uh, and this is my first look at the, at the mountainside and it is below him. So he's sort of this very narrow curling, almost shoot. And he's walking along these goat paths. And then there's these little bluffs, let's call them that. Um, Mm -hmm. and these bluffs that are, um, near, you know, vertical. And then it's a thousand foot, you know, no fall zone down to the bottom of the basin beneath him. But I, and this happened obviously very quickly. So I range him 308 yards, assess the terrain, assess where he's at. You know, it's, it's a thing with goats that they tend to die in a way that makes your life miserable. Um, or they drop off the side of the mountain and fall a thousand feet and you don't have the meat and the horns and it's just, just a mess, you know? And that's, that's a key part of goat hunting, right? Is it's not finding them. That's not the hard part. Killing them can be tough and retrieving them is usually the toughest part. Yeah, And so, um, you know, it wasn't a slam dunk just because he was at 308 yards that it was okay. It's go time. It was, okay. He's at 308 yards. That that's a possible shot. I know my rifle coming back to being familiar with, with the rifle on the load. I know I can make that shot, you know, kind of in my sleep. 
Um, but then it was, should I make this shot? You know, can, can we retrieve him? Will we retrieve him um, if something goes wrong? And here's where the, the train assessment comes in. And so I, I look at the train assessment. I see where he's, you know, he's kind of feeding along these grassy bluffs and he's between one bluff and this little goat path that no human could walk on and the next bluff. And then it kind of got a little bit like a bit of a rock fall that we could navigate. Um, and so in whatever it was, a matter of seconds, it was, that's an acceptable shot distance for this rifle, this load and my capabilities. If he feeds to this next, next bluff, my only option is to put enough lead into him that he stays there. Like I need to anchor him mm-hmm. at that spot because if he takes two steps, if he you know, rolls the wrong way, so on and so forth. And I'm not saying this was like a two foot wide bluff. There was room that if he stepped around and you know, hind legs went down or front went down, he wasn't going to roll right off. Like it, was, it was a good sort of almost like a landing on the yeah. side of the mountain. Um, but train the assessment, I was like, okay, one, where's he going to go? Where can I shoot him so that um, he'll stay there and not fall a thousand plus feet? And then of course, as part of that is, can we get to him if I, if I stick him there? Like if I put him down in that spot. So this all happens you know, mentally very quickly, get into position. Uh, the, the ridge was this knife's edge. So it dropped off really well. So I didn't even need to use my pack as a rest, got into a good prone position and um, waited for him to, he was kind of quartered away to me, like sort of almost head towards the side of the mountain, nibbling on some, some stuff. And then he turned quartering two and I'm like, okay, good. I've got front shoulder. And then, you know, sent first shot. And I knew that before that first shot was, was sent, I knew I was going to put everything I had into it. So I was already prepping for cycling the bolt, getting another one in, cycling the bolt, getting a third one in. And then from there, it would be at three, I was going to evaluate where we're at and see if I needed to keep going. Um, and, uh, and so first one into him, good hit. Second one into him, he kind of turns towards me, even more quartering towards, gives me that sort of notch, you know, between shoulder and sternum, but another one into him. And then he's her bad at this point, he's starting to drop. And, um, I put one more in and he literally sat down where he was staying, where he was staying and died. And that was that. Yeah. And of course, big celebrations and we were stoked and it, it all, you know, in hindsight, as I, as I describe it, it doesn't sound like it happened fast, but in the scale of a 10 day hunt, it went from like, we're chasing stone sheep to there's a potentially a good Billy. Let's get up, make our way that direction and see what happens. And then just boom, then we've got this, this beautiful, beautiful Billy on the ground, um, in, in pretty short order. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, there's a lot we could pull from that. It's what stands out to me a ton is, you know, we've said it and the advice is clearly out there of like, you know, practice realistic scenarios, right? So get off the bench. Don't just Absolutely. zero the rifle. Don't be the guy that checks zero from last year and like, yep, good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've talked about, you know, realistic shooting position, sitting, kneeling, standing, prone, like using field support, shooting sticks, pack, etc. I've neglected and I'm going on a goat hunt this fall. So this is a great mm-hmm. lesson yeah, for me. Yeah, nice. Fully realizing that you know, goats can soak up lead, but I, I have not been intentional and I'll probably lump myself with other hunters and say, most of us haven't been intentional with practicing quick follow-ups. Yeah. And 
you know, there's the prevailing of it. Well, only the first shot counts, which is like, okay, yeah, hopefully, ideally, right? But mm-hmm. I don't care what the species is. Obviously, goats are known for being tough, but it could happen on everything from a whitetail to an elk to a bear. Um, mm-hmm. You, yeah, I mean, that alone is how intentional you were about knowing in advance, like, I'm already ready for the next shot and I'm going to take that time um, versus shoot, wait and see what happens. Oh, exactly. I should probably get back in the scope. Oh, I should cycle around, mm-hmm. et cetera. And that exactly. comes, that comes into play with the intention, but also comes into play of if you're practicing proper fundamentals mm-hmm. and set your body position up to then recoil and stay on target and stay in the scope and practice cycling the bolt being instinctual. Like there's so many pieces to that. Um, and I've practiced a lot of that stuff, like trying to stay in scope, decent body position, recoil control, et cetera. But it really stands out how important it can be to purposely be ready for that follow-up, not just send one, wait and see. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't want that to come across as though like, Hey, look at, you know, my decision-making at all. It was, as I explained, I've had this rifle since I was 16, you know, I've manipulated that bolt to the point where you could put me and this is not boasting. This is, this is a function of training. That, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, we used to do these just kind of rewinding a little bit, but it, it matters to the story. Um, every year before deer season, my uncles um, would have this little event. They call it the running deer shoot. So they'd set up this clothesline on these motors and we'd put two guys on the firing line and we do kind of, you know, young deer size cutouts and cardboard that would run across this track, right? Like in front of you. And so the guy on the right gets the first year guy on the left gets the second year and we'd score it and there'd be, you know, a prize at the end. And so I, I grew up doing this, right. And it got to the point with me, with that, with that bolt gun where I could fire that as quickly as somebody rocking a, a pump action, you know, Remington 30 odd six or lever action 30, 30, right. It just reps, 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 reps. And it comes back mm-hmm. to what you were saying, Mark, right. There's being, you know, dialed on the range and we have to do those things, right? You have to have the fundamental, the fundamentals in place that, you know, the, the rifle needs to be, you know, lethally accurate, but when it comes to the mountains in particular, um, you know, you, you almost have to assume that you're going to get a tough shot, whether you're gonna have to use your pack or be in an uncomfortable prone position, or it's going to be a, a tough upright angle. I mean, I've seen countless photos of people shooting sheep or goats, where they got scoped, not because they don't know what they're doing. They're just, the angle was such that they, they could not get scoped. Yeah. Right. And so there's those variables really, really, really matter. And I think once you have that base capability in place, you know, your, your, your rifle is zeroed for whatever you want it to be. Um, you got to step away from the bench and start to, to, you know, really play around with things. You know, some people talk about going out and going for a hike with a gun and shooting rocks and, and whatever it might be, or, um, you know, and this kind of comes back to recoil as well. You know, do you want to go buy that fire breathing 28 nozzler that you probably don't want to cycle a ton of shots through, or do you want to take that deer gun that you're really comfortable with? That'll get it done on a lot of these, these mountain species because the recoil is manageable, which allows you to get that second follow-up shot, get it back on the scope that much easier. Um, and, and not only that, so, you know, there's the, the rifle or caliber selection, I should say, but do you want to spend that money 
on a new rifle, or would you be better to spend that money going to a shooting course where it's two, three days of really tough, challenging conditions, wind, tough shooting positions, et cetera. Um, you know, in, in my, uh, I guess, opinion, uh, I think we could, as, as a hunting community, we could stand to talk more about the skills versus mm-hmm. the tools that, um, that, that are part of many of these, many of these hunts. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that stood out as you're sharing that story is, um, just honestly, it sounds like really simple, but the, the intentionality of thinking what's next mm-hmm. and especially in a shot opportunity, not just going, this is it, this is the moment I'm going to shoot, but it's the, if then, right. So mm-hmm. in extrapolate this beyond a shot opportunity, it's, it really is, can be every decision we make on a hunt, but Mm -hmm. as you're considering this or that, it's not only this or that it's this and then, or that, and then, and you don't always know what's next, but again, just always having that forethought to think through, um, what's next, what's probable, right. Whether that's changing, um, basins, whether it's choosing to go this way or that way, and just continually thinking ahead versus only being short-sighted on this is in front of me now. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that really stood out on yes, your, your description of the shot, right? Like I could shoot, he could go here or there, but it just really makes me think of how intentional we should be about always thinking ahead with all of our decisions. Yeah. And and I think a lot of that's going to also come back to, um, you know, exposure, or if we want to simply call it, you know, reps is this was not my first goat hunt, not my first mountain hunt by any stretch. Um, and, and again, coming back to, you know, what are the variables that you don't have control over? Um, there's so many of those out there that, uh, the more you expose yourself to similar situations, which I know can be tough if you're coming from you know, the Midwest mm-hmm. or the East to go, to go West, um, you can't be a mountain hunting you know, three times a year, four times a year, something like that. It might be that once in a lifetime thing. Um, but read, you know, read books, listen to podcasts, uh, just absorb the stories. You know, I was in a fortunate position or like still am in so many ways, like we talked about at the outset here, where I had read literally hundreds of articles about mountain hunting and what happened and what went well, and what didn't go well. And, you know, as somebody who had, uh, you know, early in their mountain hunting, you know, sort of life, decided that mountain goats were one of the things I really wanted to, to pursue on a regular basis. I really started to learn about goats, you know, just how tough they are, the kind of terrain they can navigate. What do they like to eat? What do they, you know, what's the, the, you know, the old, old saying with elk, if it's, if it's hit, it's going to run downhill. If it's, if it's not, it's probably going to run uphill. So like all those little details that we can absorb about the, the critter, even if we can't do it on a regular basis, that's still preparation. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so, um, you know, in this situation, it was, it was, like you said, it was obviously very intentional, but that was a function as much of, uh, the reps, but also the research, right. The time put into understanding this animal and knowing that, yeah, one probably wouldn't get it done. And two, if I didn't, um, put more into him, then it, you know, the first shot and then wait, to me would have been a somewhat irresponsible shot. And some people might listen to this story and listen to my description of the train and think, well, I would never take that shot. And, and I, and I, you know, would, would receive that feedback and acknowledge that feedback, but based on all of 
you know, the time and preparation to include both, you know, physical and experiential being out there in the mountains for years and years and years. And then also just the, the desktop research, um, that's what gave me the confidence to, to make the call when I, when I did, but also knowing that the first shot was actually just the beginning of, yeah. of what needed to happen. Thinking about this idea of being decisive, trying to help people who, as you described, don't have as much experience, aren't able to, to gain those reps as much as they'd like. You just hinted at some great things and said some great things about the research, but I guess I'm just going back to, is there anything else that comes to mind for you on just honestly making better decisions and feel free to tie that to a story or just like what else comes to mind in terms of, okay, if, if indecision is the wrong decision, but I'm my stockpile of experience is short, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know what's next to ask the if then question. Well, like at that point in time, every situation is different, but yeah, just what, what would help guys make better decisions or just be more decisive or is it just committing and seeing and learning from it? Oh, that's a really good question, Mark. Um, The thing that comes to mind is, as you're, you know, asking that, um, and, and this really ties, ties back to what I was saying about, you know, how I grew up, you know, preparing for deer season is mentorship, right? Mm-hmm. Is find somebody with experience. Um, and maybe it's just a phone call. Maybe it's a bunch of messages, some DMs, you know, whatever it is on social media or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, I, I think what you said makes, makes probably the most sense is commit. You know, if you're going to go on a once in a lifetime goat hunt or a once in a lifetime sheep hunt, um, you know, if you're guided, yeah, I mean, you can, um, you know, kind of allow some of that responsibility to fall on the shoulders of your guide. Um, but if you're going out there on a DIY hunt that you drew, um, you know, commit to that species, you know, just because it's once in a lifetime doesn't mean that you shouldn't absorb yourself in the critter and its terrain and its habits, etc. like you would for the thing you hunt all the time, you know, like a white tail, yeah. like knows, I mean, shoot. We, it's a going joke, right? They're named. Yeah. <laughs> the whitetails are named. Um, and, you know, same thing with people that hunt the same, you know, elk woods or zones every year or just hunt elk every single year. That kind of happens just almost automatically because you're out there and you're learning. But there are, are ways to, I guess, kind of accelerate that, that learning curve or shorten that learning curve, um, which maybe at times will seem tedious or seem boring or, you know, reading the book, the beast, the color of winter, which is a famous book about mountain goats. And it really Mm -hmm. gives you a deep appreciation for just how unique and tough a critter they are. Um, It might seem, you know, like, oh, this isn't nearly as fun as being out there, but all that information, all that knowledge, all those conversations, all that practice, ideally, it all comes together in these moments, right? You're not having to think through these things. You know, what's that saying you hear at a, the military all the time? You don't rise to the occasion. You, you know, you descend to the level of your preparation. And I'm, I'm kind of butchering that, mm-hmm. but, you know, knowledge is part of the preparation, um, which can lead to good decision-making. I mean, you know, you, you, if you, you know, you and I were talking earlier, you got young kids, you know, what your grocery list is most weeks. You don't need to think mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Right. Like you just, you just go out there and you do it. And yeah, maybe you check, you know, are we out of cucumbers and hot dogs and whatever, but you know what the basic needs are. And yeah. I think having that information is a really, really key part of that. And, and look, the good news is there's so much of it out there. Like how many podcasts, how many 
you know, print magazines, how many hunting forums, how many blogs or digital, you know, content, um, you know, websites are out there. There's a lot of material out there and not to mention, you know, the, the social media or, you know, networking side of things is talking to people who've been into these places. Or if you drew a specific tag in a specific unit for goats, for instance, talk to the biologist, talk to hunters who've been there, ask the biologist if, you know, they know somebody who might be willing to chat about it. In my experience, whether they're family, friends, or just randos you meet on social media, most people are really, really helpful and want to see you one, be successful, but also hope that they can help you do right by the critter, but make mm-hmm. the most out of your hunt too. I think it's, um, it's easy in this day and age, like everything you said, so true of how much information we have. And that's, um, a blessing, but it can also just be, if we're not careful with how we consume the information, it's not helpful. And I guess what I'm getting at is like, you can watch, you know, pick the species. If you're going on your first shelf and you can watch as many videos as possible, listen to all the podcasts and take in a mass amount of information, or you can be very particular that as you're taking in information, you're actually thinking through the time to ask mm. why, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's not, you know, you can't, it's, it's not osmosis. You can't just put your head on the book, go to sleep and take in the information. <laughs> you can't just turn on YouTube, watch a hunt and assume that that's going to be helpful. So that, that almost the toddler, like, well, why, well, why, well, why? Yeah, and absolutely. you don't want to bug absolutely. someone to death, but yeah. you have to have that level of like curiosity to, to get behind, um, why things happen. And, you know, we don't always have those answers. That's part of the beauty of hunting is we don't know why and things aren't, there isn't a formula to everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but that really stands out thinking through like decision-making decisive moments, um, is just really asking why, and maybe that's observing someone in a video Mm -hmm. and maybe you don't have the chance to ask them that, but you're able to hit pause and think through, okay, they just did that. Mm Mm-hmm why? Like why maybe? And again, you don't have the answer, but I think just thinking a little bit critically, as you said, in advance, if you're not able to have the experience is really going to be helpful um, to just take, take, to get the most out of that. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, and it's a great, it's a huge point, Mark. And like you said, I think a few times here, it is about intention and, and, you know, bring up videos. That's a great, great um, opportunity as well. And I didn't even mention that is you know, watch that video and think, would I take that shot? If I did take that shot, what would I do? Would I, would I kind of cross my fingers and hope that that first shot from the three engine winner, the 338 knocked that Billy over maybe, or do I want to be certain that where he is or it is, whatever we're talking about goes down where it is to make my tracking easier, to make my retrieval easier, all those sorts of things. Like there's just, I mean, there's almost some might say too much content out there. Um, but that can be training and prep too. Like what do, what do NFL players do? They watch film. Mm. That's part of their prep. Um, and I know it's not the cool, sexy stuff that everyone likes to talk about, but, you know, again, bring it back to decision-making a combination of knowledge, practical experience, anecdotal, you know, research, talking to people, it, it all comes together, right? Where you, you can, you can, as I said, shorten that learning curve to you transition from, having to think through all those steps, even if only half those steps are just automatic for you yeah. and you can worry about the, whatever the next thing is. And so, um, you know, I think it's, 
there are, I guess I'll put it in a way that maybe some people won't like, but to me, there's just no, there's no excuse for not having as much knowledge as possible. doesn't mean it's all going to go right. And, you know, things could have gone wrong on, on this story for me, he could have turned, you know, left when I needed him to turn right. And he could have, you know, as goats have done before taken one shot and hopped off the bluff and disappeared. Like, I'm not saying like, I knew for certain that it was going to work out the way I wanted to, but I was confident in all of the, all aspects of the situation to make the shot that I did, which was a function of not just being comfortable with the rifle, but being knowledgeable about goats, about their behavior, about the realities of goats, their, you know, their toughness. Um, and, and then the realities of our capabilities to retrieve that goat, if, um, something didn't go well. Um, and yeah. so all those things come together in, in what are you know really, really key moments and hunts and allow for decision-making in, in, you know, a fraction of a second versus deliberating with your buddy for two minutes while you turn around and look back and that Billy's now only given you a, a Texas heart shot. Yeah. For guys that I think would hear, well, I'm not going to have that opportunity on a goat and have to decide, is it going to go off a thousand foot bluff and can I retrieve it? But I mean, you can extrapolate that same thing to what if a guy's archery elk hunting and it's getting to be last light. And he also knows, for example, that there's a chance of rain tonight. It's like Mm -hmm. maybe your shot decision matrix is, you know, is the, are the conditions in my favor? Am I going to be able to recover in a different scenario? Not because of a cliff, Mm -hmm. but because of time or darkness or weather or what have you. So Mm -hmm. again, I think there's a lot that guys can pull out of this on if we only focused and there's a lot more, but if we only focused on shot opportunities, it's like just making sure that you come back to, am I ready for this? Right. Because Mm -hmm. once, once that arrow, once that bullets in motion, there's no taking that sucker back and Mm -hmm. there's real consequences to whatever happens after Mm -hmm. that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's, it's good, I think, to use this story as an example and apply it to many other contexts of just making sure that we're ready and not so focused on there's the animal. I have a weapon. This is what I've wanted and assume that it's like the right moment, the right time and all that. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's so true. And I, when you and I were talking about this, there, you know, there's so many instances where though in my hunting history, where the difference between a cut tag and and not cutting a tag was being really decisive um, when it when it counted, and uh, some of that was luck. Like I think I hinted at one of my elk stories, that was luck through and through, plus very quick decision making. Um, but in other circumstances, it's like I've described with this goat hunt, and I think this is where actually I'll say this quickly. I think this is where whitetail hunters uh, traveling west have an edge on western hunters because preparation, research, understanding the animal to the point where you can name that buck is a level of commitment to the process that I'm not saying Western hunters don't have, but a lot of us are more like, yeah, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to find whatever I'm finding. And I got to, you know, my, my weapon's got to be dialed and I've got to be competent and I've got to be capable and I've got to be physically ready and my gear has got to work. And then we're, we're just going to get it done, right? We're going to figure it out. I, but I think, you know, for those that listen to this, that aren't based in the West. Um, there's a lot of skills and, and almost discipline you can repurpose from your primary pursuit to one of these more, uh, unique opportunities as well. Yeah. That's a great point. 
I could talk all day to you, Adam. I appreciate the time. <laughs> uh, for guys who want to hear more, uh, again, we mentioned up front, but like any links or things like that that you just want to share and throw out if guys want to check out more of what you're up to. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, it's beyondthekill.net is uh, you know the website where we've got, as I said, hundreds of articles. We, there's po- the podcasts are on there as well. Um, Beyond the Kill is the podcast, which you, which you can find on all the podcast players. Uh, IG is Beyond the Kill. I believe there's Beyond underscore the underscore kill, I believe is what it is, but we just made that change. So don't quote me on that. <laughs> uh, but that said, if you go to drillamountainhunting.com, it's going to redirect you to all that stuff anyways. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not for everyone. It's not meant to be for everyone, but if you're interested in hunting the mountains and preparing to hunt in the mountains, and of course, um, uh, I'll just put, I guess, put it simply, uh, key topics in conservation, especially with mountain species. Uh, you'll find a lot of that, uh, on the, on the podcast and on the website as well. Awesome. Thanks for the time, man. Hey, thank you. A really good time. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. We do have one more episode planned in this reverse engineering success series. I hope you come back next week to hear about a great elk hunt and all the key decisions that were involved in the success for our friend, Anthony Oberti. To receive future episodes automatically, hit that follow or subscribe button in your podcast app. Once again, you can contact us directly by email to podcast at xomountaingear.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.